We at On The Way Home would like to acknowledge the original stewards of whose lands this podcast is recorded on. In York Region, we recognize we're on the traditional territories of the Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, and the Anishinaabe peoples, and that this is the treaty lands of the Mississaugas of the Credit. And in Vancouver, we acknowledge that we are on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh, whose presence on these lands continue to this day. Welcome to On The Way Home, a podcast dedicated to the issues surrounding homelessness and the incredible experts making a difference in the lives of homeless people. Remember to subscribe to the podcast anywhere you're listening and share it with a friend. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of On The Way Home. As usual, we have an amazing guest today that I'm very excited about. Um, but before we get to that guest, let's talk about the good folks at Blue Door and see AEH who bring you this podcast on a weekly basis. My organization is Blue Door. Uh, we are in we are north of Toronto in York Region, which nine municipalities, and we do some work in Peel and Durham. So all over the top of the GTA, the Greater Toronto Area, we do work, um, and we are very excited to continue doing work in our construction social enterprise construct. The idea behind this construction social enterprise really is that. It helps to prevent homelessness, right? For the longest time, we learned from our mistakes. We were putting people into jobs and we're pulling them out of poverty that didn't have a lot of meaning. I wondered why it didn't work with these construction trades jobs. Not only are they building or helping to create the hundreds of thousands of uh, homes we need to prevent and end homelessness, we're actually giving people uh, well-paying jobs right from the get-go. Uh, and meaningful work where people could point at a building and say, I was a part of that. I did that. I And transferable work, and it's going to grow from there on. And the starting wage is 21 to $28 an hour. Coincidentally, in the greater Toronto area, that's what you need to afford a one-bedroom apartment. So good work, meaningful work. It's pretty cool. And guess what? Here's the other benefit, too. We're a construction company, a social enterprise. So if we do work at your home, the experts are doing it. What you don't pay for are the eight people that are coming along, learning a little bit, then getting launched into the trades. So you're doing some social good. It's really, really cool. Um, and so that program continues to grow and expand. We're very proud of that. That is Construct at Blue Door. Listen, if you haven't signed up yet for the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness Conference, and I think our speaker today is actually one of the guests at the conference. Um, I see a nod, so yes, he is. Um, sign up for this conference it's one of the largest if not the largest in north america it's the first time in a couple of years that we can do it in person if, if hey you can't travel or you don't want to travel uh maybe it's too expensive maybe you're not comfortable you can do it virtual as well uh, so go to the website cah.ca sign up i'm not sure by the time this airs whether you'll still get the early bird discount regardless it's a tremendous value great speakers the subjects over the couple of days that it's on so check it out this year it's in toronto uh, they're doing amazing work and also if you're interested in becoming a built for zero community uh, go to the website check out the built for zero work that the alliance is doing it is incredible and it is certainly helping to prevent and end homelessness now if you've been paying attention in the last little while we hear all about inflation rates going up inflation is above eight percent and in order right now in canada in order to try and bring that down what the bank of canada is doing this is rising are those low interest rates interest rates have gone up so high they've never uh got up this fast since 1998 right and what that is doing of course their idea is hopefully to bring down inflation by uh curbing people's spending a little bit and that's simplifying it of course 
But here's what we don't hear about, what this does to our most vulnerable, right? We hear it from people all the time. I may not be able to afford my mortgage payment. I may not be able to. But if you look at that, that effect on our most vulnerable with rents going up uh, and their income remaining stable and in, in Ontario, social assistance rates are still below what they were in 1995. You think of inflation from 1995, it is crazy. Uh, if you actually break that down a little more, our vulnerable population, uh, those who are racialized, black and indigenous communities are feeling that even more, right? Our food banks have said in the last year, they saw a 47% increase, people using food banks from oh, year over year. And those who use food banks have $9 at the end of the month uh, for uh, for just left over after paying the rent for food, $9. Racialized community, $6 a month. So something's gotta change, something has to break. Uh, this is hurting our most vulnerable and we're always looking for different solutions, which also brings me to today's distinguished guest. I have with me today, Dr. Antoine Lavelle. Uh, so excited to have, have him. Dr. Lavelle's a, a provost postdoctoral fellow at the University of Pennsylvania Schools of Social Policy and Practice, where he is mentored by one of the foremost experts on homelessness policy, Dr. Dennis Colhane. Uh, Col uh, his research interests focus on integrating public voices into housing policy. We've heard time and time again on this podcast, bad policy created homelessness. Good policy has to happen if we're going to end homelessness. Moving forward, his work has been published in Urban Social Work, the Journal of Behavioral Health Services and Research in the Journal of uh, Negro Education. For over a decade, Dr. Lavelle has worked on behalf of homeless population and other communities that have been made vulnerable through systemic oppression. Dr. Lavelle has multiple academic appointments in uh, several policy and social work developments where he teaches graduate level courses, some of which include Columbia University School of Social Work and New York University School of Social Work, a well-accomplished person and man, so young too. I mean, it's, I'm like, wow, this guy, what this is gives me great hope for the future because let's face it, I'm old. I'm not going to be a part of that wave that's going to make great change happen. This uh, young man and scholar and researcher and wonderful person is Antoine. Welcome to the Thank show. Thank you, Michael, for having me. I appreciate it. And I appreciate those kind words. So, um, <laughs> you know, I think I come from a very humble background and those, those words and, you know, my bio, uh, I say those are the things that I do, but they're not who I am. So, but I appreciate that. And we're going to talk. Oh, you're, you're, listen, it's well earned, and you've earned every uh, minute of that praise. We're going to talk more about your journey too. We start the podcast every time with a, a fairly simple uh, question that does not have a simple answer. It's a little different for everyone. What does home mean to you? Yeah, so home will always be where my mother is, right? And I say, you know, my mother's in Brooklyn, New York, so that's always going to be home. And that's somewhere I can always go back to and receive the love and care that I need. And I think that's always what home should be for people, is where they have that safe space where they can be loved on. Um, and that could be an individual residence, but it also is a, a community. I'm also a part of a very large community, and I consider that home. For me, home is between Brooklyn, New York, and Trenton, New Jersey. Uh, my grandparents migrated from the South to Trenton where they were married. Um, and then they proceeded up to Brooklyn, New York, where they started their family and had 13 wonderful children. Um, so half of my family is in Trenton, New Jersey, and half of my family is in Brooklyn. However, my childhood, I see my childhood through 
you know, walking through the streets of Trenton, New Jersey, where my nephew lives, where my nieces live. Um, and so that's always going to be home. But I was nurtured in Trenton, but I was born in Brooklyn. I love it. We listen, we've had all sorts of answers and there's various themes like family and safety, but no one has said home is where my mother is. I love that. Uh, great, great thought. I was hoping we talked a little bit about your bio. You said that's what I do. That's not who I am necessarily. Let's talk a little bit about who you are. Can you talk a little bit about your journey into this sector? Yeah, it's a, it's a long journey. I always tell my students that I'm so happy that social work chose me. I didn't choose it, but I'm so happy that it did. You know, I grew up in Trenton, was born in Brooklyn, of course. Um, and during my time in Trenton, New Jersey, you know, my mother wanted me to have a better education. There was one high school there. Um, so we proceeded to move back to Brooklyn because she wanted me to go to a better school. She saw something in me um, that she thought was what she called special. And she wanted me to have the resources that were necessary to just make sure that you know, I could grow and thrive, uh, especially in education. Um, I've always been a person who wanted to read, who was just wanted to have conversations about some of the social issues in the world. So we lived in, we moved back to New York and we lived with family members, multiple family members, um, until one day, you know, the last family member said, you can't stay here anymore. Um, and before, you know, we proceeded to live on the train, you know, we lived with some of my mother's friends, but it wasn't sustainable. And the only place that we can go was New York City Transit, right, where we stayed on the train. So during the day, I would go to school where I received love and care from teachers, uh, where I was able to eat, um, to do extracurricular activities, mostly tutoring um, to ensure that, you know, I could do well in school. Um, but eventually, you know, we ended up in a uh, family shelter in uh, the Bronx in New York City. And that's because one day I was reading a daily news article on the train. Uh, this was in the 90s where, you know, New York City had a bunch of, you know, uh, newspapers laying around. And I remember reading an article on the train about families going to a place called the Emergency Assistance Unit. And I remember telling my mother, we should go here. And she refused. I'm not going there. Because <laughs> right? she felt that it wasn't safe. Even though, you know, sleeping on New York City trains wasn't safe at all, but something it was something that wasn't familiar to her. But I remember the look on my face, on my mother's face one day when she said, I'm ready. And I remember that ride on the four train up to the Bronx, to the, uh, the EAU, um, and going to different shelters. Um, you know, some of the most notorious shelters in New York City and, and staying there for a while. But eventually we ended up in the Bronx at a tier two shelter. Um, where my life changed because a social worker asked me one question. He asked me, was I going to college? And I remember responding to him, we don't do that. And he thought, what do you mean we? I said, well, black people. I had never seen someone in my family. My mother had 13 brothers and sisters. No one finished college. I had a whole host of cousins. No one finished high school. So I never thought that higher education was available to me. And he told me, of course it is. I had been living on a train with my mother, but my, my GPA was still very high. And I was doing very well in high school. He told me if I continued doing what I was doing, that I would go to college and I would be very successful. And I remember going back to high school, telling everyone I'm going to college. And I was happy about it because this door was open for me. I saw that resources were available to me. And that was the beginning of my journey 
Um, and this was a social worker. I'm a social worker. And there's really that connection to serving others. And throughout my life and my career, it's always about serving people who are pushed to the margins of society, homeless individuals, you know, homeless and runaway youth, people who are differently, dis are differently abled, um, people who have mental, you know, challenges, like all of those populations that I care very much about, I've done so as an administrator working on behalf of them. Um, and that's what I will continue to do. And even for me, just my knowledge around housing, I've been able to use that to ensure that my mother is successfully housed in a supportive housing building in Brooklyn, where she is thriving as an older adult. So I really understand housing and homelessness from really childhood to older adulthood and everything that happens in the middle. And even so, I don't consider myself an expert. I consider myself a public servant of someone who's continuing this journey. And I always say that at the end of my life, I wanna be able to say, what did I do and how did I do it? And everything in between is how did I do it and what did I do? Well, that's amazing. Thank you so much for uh, sharing that story. And I think, you know, when you come to the table, not only you're coming to the table as a scholar and a published scholar and all the work that you do, but you are what we call a lived expert. Um, and that doesn't always happen. And I think we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. I, I mentioned at the beginning of the show about homelessness being a result of bad policy, why homelessness absolutely has always been around in the 90s across North America. We saw it just skyrocket because of policy decisions. Um, now, not only, you know, and I want to get your thoughts on that, you know, about bad policy and, and why it's, but, but more importantly, why is it so important to have the voices of lived experts like yourself at the table when you're just so I never policy. even call myself an expert, Michael, right? Um, you can't be an expert on someone's lived experience. So I kind of push back when people call themselves homeless experts, right? This is not political science. This is someone's lived experience, right? To really understand homelessness, please sleep face down on a train and wake up four o'clock in the morning as people are commuting to work and you really will understand homelessness. Um, for me, you know, I... I am so far removed that I have multiple layers of privilege that I can't really say that I am an expert today, right? Those layers of privilege actually pushes me further away from the community. But what I feel like I'm able to do is be humble enough to be able to listen and to incorporate others' lived experiences into policy and practice. So what I believe is that people who are currently experiencing homelessness or recently have experienced homelessness should be at the forefront of making policies and programs. Um, so I appreciate your calling me, you know, uh, expert, but I'm still learning because, I mean, if you understand homelessness, it's just, it's a very diverse uh, social problem. So to say that I'm an expert on older adults, on young adults, on people who go through domestic violence, people who are pushed into homelessness because of the child welfare system, I wouldn't be honest to be able to sit here and tell you that. Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity.
To hire Construct for your next project or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Yeah, it's such thank you for that decision. You're, you're so right. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, I, I think about my own experience, not an expert either. I've been doing this work a long time, but every day I'm learning. And when I speak to people who uh, are in our emergency housing or shelters and they're telling me the realities of what's happening to them, learning again, thinking, okay, I'm doing, I'm going the wrong direction uh, on this. And here's where my focus needs to be. I remember in 2014, uh, with youth homelessness, we met with the police. We met with uh, what's called the Children's Aid Child Welfare Group and um, the provincial government. And they said, they were talking about, the police were saying, look, uh, every day we're pulling young women out of human trafficking situations. We finally get them to leave. It takes them, uh, I think it's, it's like seven times before they actually will leave. He said, we're not social workers. We're doing our jobs. You need to do yours. And I thought, human trafficking is that like i thought that was just a european thing i watched the movie taken is that not you know and so again oblivious to it learned and they were saying yeah every night we could pull off and they started showing me some of the stats the average age 14 pulling girls off and and, and just really said it's not about money or drugs it's about actual the promise of family connection love mm -hmm. no idea so when you say that as soon as you think you're an expert you're humbled to the point of not at all there's always things changing and happening um, but I, I think quite often when policies are being made, those voices of lived experience are not at the table. Um, what can we do better? And why is it so important to have those voices at yeah, the table? Yeah, research clearly shows there? that a bottom-up approach to policymaking is the most effective way at approaching social problems. Right? People who have lived experience, people who have gone through it recently, they can tell you exactly what the problem is. We don't need to continue to invest millions and millions of dollars on research studies when we can just go right to people who are experiencing these issues and they can tell you exactly what they need. Um, so we need to be able to listen to people. And I, I don't ever use the word voiceless. People have voices is that are you willing to open your ears to listen to exactly what they're saying? Um, and for me, I, I, I understand that people who are educated are privileged enough to be heard, but we have to move away from that model. <laughs> it shouldn't be institutionalized education that we actually present as expertise. We re really should listen to people who are currently going through it. And there are so many advocates around the country um, who are trying to push, you know, away from that model um, from just using, you know, um, academics or people who are, you know, practitioners or executives um, to talk about this problem. We need to create a bottom-up approach, right? I, I believe in qualitative research you know, ethnography, um, understanding case studies to be able to change the narratives around what the problems really are around homelessness. Um, and I think if you listen to people and those individual stories, you'll really understand how difficult it is to eradicate homelessness, right? I think we have to understand education as a flawed lane. We have to understand healthcare as a flawed lane. We have to understand the child welfare system, foster care is a flawed lane, and also discrimination in the labor market, right? We, you can have affordable housing, but can people actually enter the labor market and do well in the labor market to afford what we call affordable? So there are a number of things that we have to address before we can even get there. So I think we have to be able to listen to people. Also, we generally don't listen to young adults, youth, or children. And, you know, when I look at New York City, you know, over 100,000 children are currently living in homeless shelters. That's a problem. 
right? That's a human rights violation. But what are we doing to listen to them? Because they have voices. They'll tell you exactly what they need. Are we listening to, you know, high school students who are also in homeless shelters who may need mentorship, right? Because it goes back to my Angela. When you know better, you can do better. So maybe they need that social capital to do better. Like there are so many things that we can do and so many lanes that we all can work in to start addressing homelessness. So, so talking about people who have brought uh, the voices of lived experience into effect policy, who's doing this well? Are there examples of policies where you're like, wow, definitely they were listening to the voices. Yeah, I, and I think I can point to the mayor of Baltimore, Maryland, where they're starting to be innovative with federal dollars, where they're understanding capitalism uh, and its impact of homelessness and really taking hotel rooms and then transferring them over to affordable housing. Because at the end of the day, we should not be giving large corporations um, what we call corporate welfare to house individuals. People need stable housing. They need to be rooted in a community so that they can start you know, building a community around them so that they know their neighbors. Research shows that when people are rooted in communities, they're more likely or less likely to be homeless. So we need to ensure that we are paying people or paying rent for people to stay in communities so that they can thrive rather than just survive. So interesting you say that, right? And I talk about failing a lot. Um, we learn sometimes, um, but that was the big failure too. So we we're doing housing first. So we were at Blue Door and other places where housing people put them in, and we see them like a month later. I'm like, hey, okay, what are you doing back here? We got because we didn't create community. They had a community at the shelter. You talked about it as a kid, it's community, right? I had you know, so take our men's shelter with 25 guys. I got buddies. I got people that care if I'm there or not. I got a meal every day. Um, people are asking me questions. You put me in a house, I'm alone, I'm isolated, I have no community. So we started with the aftercare of how do we actually get you integrated so this becomes your community. So yeah, very, very yeah. Uh, important. I know in your journey, in your journey and all the work that you've done in your life, uh, you've often talked about the intersection of race, racism, and homelessness. Can you expand a little bit? Yeah, you know, on, so on housing and social justice are my passion. Um, you know, interacting in this world as a black man, right? I have the lived experience of understanding systemic oppression, barriers uh, that have been presented to me. But even just looking at statistics, um, even in, if you look at Canada, indigenous folks are about 4% of the population, but are overrepresented, right? Within the homeless population. That speaks to barriers, oppression, right? I would say systems create symptoms. Right. So look at doing, you know, a system analysis, we can understand like what's wrong, but we don't really do that. African-Americans in the United States are 13 percent of the population, but are overrepresented, about 30 to 40 percent of the homeless population. Even when you look at New York City in terms of family homelessness, you see that African-American women are disproportionately represented. But even when you look at within minoritized groups, if you compare African-American women with Latinas, you see that there's still disparities between the two because we're not even thinking further ahead in terms of colorism and the impact of colorism on homelessness. Because if you have African-American women who aren't able to um, assimilate into whiteness, then they're not able to gain those benefits versus Latinas, there's that diversity in terms of skin color. Um, and we're not, we're not thinking even that far. 
Um, so we have to be able to address those pieces. Even further than that, you know, my research goes around homeless youth, right? You know, it was the time when I became homeless. I'm very interested in emerging adults and homeless youth. You look at LGBTQ population in Canada and in the U.S. It's about, in Canada, about 25 to 40% of the homeless youth population. In the U.S. is about 40%. That goes to talk about systemic you know, discrimination and oppression, uh, where people don't have access to jobs, right? Where people are discriminated against based off of who they love, how they look, and how they present in the world. Until we can actually discuss discrimination and racism, we won't get to eradicating homelessness because it is those barriers that are preventing people from actually thriving in the economy, right? When I say the market, it's the labor market, it's the housing market, right? It's the healthcare market. It's all of these markets that are important for people to be able to be stable in housing. And housing first is so very important. But also we have to think about the individual populations and homelessness, right? We, when you look at New York City, they gave vouchers to youth that left foster care. And they saw that even though they gave vouchers to people, people would abandon their units after a while. It's because they didn't have the access to that social capital. So we, we have to also understand the population and their needs and address it that way. So those supportive services that aren't mandated but are available to people are so very important. And you kind of, you, I think that's what you're uh, answering there, but what has to happen um, with racialized communities so they can access truly affordable? Because I love what you said before. We don't ask people. In, in Canada, uh, Canadian Mortgage Housing Corp says affordable is 80% of market rent. And let me tell you, yeah. not affordable for most still, uh, but let's say truly affordable. What has to happen? I mean, I think uh, we have to, to make that change. Truly be honest with ourselves and say that you know, disc racial discrimination, racial ethnic discrimination, homophobia, um, how we discriminate against people who are differently able are the major causes of homelessness, right? We have to acknowledge that, but it also we have to address each of those issues individually, give them individual time and effort and move from there, right? You know, homelessness is just a lagging indicator, right? Of poverty, right? It's a lagging indicator. So we have to create these anti-poverty programs to address some of the people who are pushed to the margins. And I talked about it earlier, education, healthcare, the child welfare system and discrimination. We have to move from this capitalistic society of only building shelters and not affordable housing. Because what shelters really do, they just really put money into the pocket of the top 1%, right? That's a problem, right? CEOs of these shelters, they're making millions of dollars. Right. No, no CEO should be making millions of dollars off of homelessness. We should be able to transfer or redistribute that money back into the pockets of people who are currently going through these issues. Right. People need quality education. Right. People need health care. We always say that we're one cancer diagnosis away from being homeless. It is true. Even if you're a homeowner and your property is worth a million dollars, a long term stay Right, in a hospital wipes that wealth away. So it's ensuring in the US that people have access to healthcare, right? And this is not hard, right? We all know that these are the cases, but it takes political courage. It takes people being fearless to be honest and then also putting the efforts behind it, right? Policy or failed policy, I would say it's a choice. People make choices. They're rational decisions by elected officials. 
but it also goes back to who's financing elected officials, right? Whose agenda will be put on the table? When you don't have access to the economy or wealth, it's, it's not likely that elected officials will even listen to you, right? It'll be theater rather than actually making the effort to create policies, right, to ensure that your well-being is really taken into account. So I would say we have to create a new framework, a new model, because we're still using these old models and, and we know that they don't work and it doesn't make sense. So I would say policy failures aren't you know, unintended consequences. They're deliberate, they're intentional, right? If you, I, there's a really great article. There's a really, it's an old article by Herbert Gans. It was published in 1972, The Positive Function of Poverty. And it's a critical theorist perspective of understanding poverty and how a lot of um, uh, careers, social workers, police officers, um, how it's needed or it's a part of the, the gasoline for our economy, right? Even just, you know, giving people a label of undocumented or aliens, those terms that we use, right? We give them that so that they can stay at the margins and we can use them in our economy. Right. And if we use a social justice or a human rights framework, we can really begin to change things. Right. And I would say that, you know, my mother, it, it, she didn't fully gain all her rights as a African-American woman. And so she was in her 20s. Right. We have to ensure people's rights as we're thinking about policy by having them in the room, by giving up any kind of privilege and power that we have listening to them and embedding those voices into our public policies. Well, well said, and it could not, uh, it just could not be truer at all. Now, I want to congratulate you. You've recently been awarded a pre prestigious grant, the William T. Grant Foundation grant. Congrats. Uh, can you tell us what the grant yeah, will be so used for? So first I want to thank the William T. Grant Foundation for, for the award. Um, their efforts are always to um, eradicate uh, poverty, especially among young adults. I also want to thank, you know, Max Crowley at Penn State, who's mentoring me on this grant. Um, and we're using research evidence to really inform social policies. Um, and a lot of my research will be um, using messaging science um, and really testing messaging science with elected officials, state legislatures, federal um, uh, uh, US, the, U, the United States Congress members to see what messages actually um, are the most impactful and that will lead to policy change. So that's a lot of what I'll be doing with that grant. Um, and eventually down the line, you know, as a community-based researcher, I will embed myself into communities to ensure that my research really um, amplifies their voices uh, so that we can start making changes, uh, especially policy changes. Um, that's the only way to go, is that we have to make sure that these policies reflect communities that are currently going through these things. So my grant through the William T. Grant Foundation will be um, using research evidence to inform policies by actually interacting with state and city and federal legislatures. Well, very cool. You bring up some very, very important because sometimes these reports also report, you know, filled with brilliance and they sit on a shelf. And I hear you say, not my intent. I want these to actually make change happen. Uh, now, how far along are you? Are you just starting? So the grant you learning was recently so far? Awarded you within the share? last month. Uh, but some of the preliminary data suggests that 
uh, the state of California, they're actually really progressive in terms of uh, creating policies and programs around youth homelessness. And I think that's so important. Um, so they're doing really great work. Um, and there are different, you know, city and states that are doing this work. But right now, in terms of policies that really give access to young adults, because that's what my research really is, it's, it's tailored to is young adults. We really don't have a lot of policies and programs that really acknowledge that childhood has been extended beyond 18 and that people need more time in childhood. Right. And if you look at some of the articles by um, Jeffrey Arnett, he suggests that, you know, emerging adulthood is no longer it, it, it extends to sometimes 25 and longer. But we really don't have this developmental phase yeah. embedded into our policies. So, of course, we're not creating housing or um, vouchers to address this developmental phase. Yeah, it's so interesting you say that. I saw I read something today uh, in our Toronto paper, the Toronto Star, saying that, and it was just a different regions, but about fifty percent of youth up to the age of thirty are still living at home with their families. If you have a family, that's the big thing. Come in our child welfare, and that whole that old school eighteen, and you're ready to go uh, for for those uh, kids coming out of that. I mean, who need that extension? It's just not there, and, and changes are happening, which is good to see, but uh, well, well overdue. You're doing incredible work. Uh, I'm so excited to see, and hopefully you can come back and share once the research is completed, because I'd love to learn more. Uh, where can people go to find out more about the work you're doing to keep up? So, yeah, uh, so see, I uh, all the great Twitter. stuff that's um, happening. It's at Antoine underscore Lavelle. People can always DM me. Um, I'll always get back to you. Um, you can email me at alavelle at upenn.edu or alavelle at fordham.edu. I'll always get back to you. You know, I get multiple requests for people for mentorship. I'm always about making sure that I invest in others who are willing to do this work. Um, even just my teaching, it's about investing in future social workers so that they can now deconstruct some of the systems that don't work on behalf of homeless populations and do this work. I always tell them if I get one person, I know that you will reach thousands of people over the course of your career, and that's impact. And I want people to really understand that impact and these changes that we are making to a system that currently is not working for the most vulnerable. You're absolutely right. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you. I uh, love your passion. I love your hu humility. Um, and you give me great hope uh, for the future. And I love how you're, you're focused. I began this work. Uh, most of my journey has been working with youth. And I love talking with them. And I'll tell you a funny story. Anytime I actually would go up and chat with you, they always thought I was a, a cop. Uh, so the trust wasn't there right from the beginning. And the more you, and the funny part was more, you're like, no, I'm not. The more they'd wink at me and say, yeah, no problem. Thinking I was undercover. So I just stopped. I just stopped arguing and just, just started listening. You know? And I don't know. I always think they're just, a lot with youth uh, experiencing homelessness, there's a lot of hope there. Most youth you talk to, you're like, well, I'm not going to do this forever. They don't actually refer to themselves as homeless yeah. either. They don't want this. Yeah, actually, Michael, like you know, my um, my uh, dissertation was looking at emerging adults in public housing. And I asked them what was their perception of the future based off of living in generations of poverty. And my findings were that they are optimistic about the future, but they require resources. And that's all I'm trying to do. I consider myself a resource, but I also want to be able to yeah. connect them to things that are available to them in their communities. 
and you're doing absolutely that please keep up the great work so grateful i'm hoping to see you at the canadian alliance and homelessness conference in thank person you thank you so much for joining the show today wow i mean how many hours in a day and uh dr lavelle seems to find more than 24 because he's doing so much he's making real impact he's humble uh he has that lived experience that he's willing to share i think that if young people hear about they're like wow you know he lived on a train lived in shelters and now look at the work that he's doing very inspiring and opening doors for so many uh incredible guests he is going to be a presenter at caeh the conference check that out sign up for his session and many many more hey listen we'll continue to bring you high quality brilliant guests on this podcast share it listen to it on your way home maybe or when you're having your morning coffee or on the weekend when you're just chilling out this is uh we're so fortunate when we hear we hear all these negative stories all the time right in about inflation about um just different things happening in our world this is a positive podcast with people that come on here that are going to make change happen and we can and will prevent and end homelessness i know it with people like uh, dr lavelle at the, the helm and pushing this work it can be done we will see you next time I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.